in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study and clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed of Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, we boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more and nothing less. And we do it all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our study of Article 5 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which is said to be love fulfilling the law, or we say more plainly, good works. I really encourage all of you that this is our fourth study on good works, and I encourage you to check out our previous studies as our study is built on the solid foundation where we have five studies on justification, and we are going to have seven studies on good works. And you might be asking yourself, why such a thorough teaching upon this? Well, I tell you what, is that the more I teach this, the more questions that arise. The more I teach this, the more we need to focus on justification. And the more I teach on this, the more I need to look to Christ, his cross, his resurrection for our hope. So today, Melanchthon digs into the arguments, and it's almost like we are in a Bible study here today where he looks at the adversaries who were using Scripture to try to disprove what the Concordians, Concordians believed on good works. So this is why it's important today. And not only open up your book of Concord, but also open up your Bible and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Apology, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Mark Bestel of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor, Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me, Brady. Pastor, we had you on last time, and we were studying justification. And one of the great quotes that I wrote down from that day and, and uh, used in a sermon and used in other places is when you look at justification, you said these words, that uh, faith is the end of a terrified conscience. So faith, let me rephrase that, faith in Christ is the end of a terrified conscience. Now, Pastor, I want to start this way because I thought that was such a wonderful quote. Actually, it's really quoted right before our time in number 96 um, in the passages before our time. But Pastor, as we look at good works, why is it important to not lose sight of those words that faith in Christ is the, the end of a terrified conscience? And why is that important as we look at good works? Without a clear conscience in Christ, works become something that you do because you're terrified, uh, and then they're no longer good. The, the definition of a good work can only be true uh, if it's a work that is done in Christ, because only Christ is good. Uh, and, and therefore, if I stand before God by myself and on my own and try to show him that I'm good, I'm going to have a terrified conscience. The clear conscience is the one that says, my redemption is in Christ Jesus. I need not fear what God thinks of me. Uh, I can go out and love his holy law. Uh, again, this article is, is, uh, is properly titled Love and, and Fulfilling the Law, right? So, so I can go out and love his holy law and, and do the very best uh, uh, to my ability uh, in order to um, uh, advance his goodwill in, in this world. And I need not be terrified uh, by what he will think of me. 
if I if I try to do good works by myself, or if I try the works to be good on my own accord and by my own righteousness, I will always end up terrified. I will never actually love my neighbor for his own benefit, but I will only love my neighbor for my benefit. I will only say, neighbor, I am using you as a pawn in order to clear my conscience before God. And thereby, it's no good work at all. It's a very selfish work. And so the only good work that can be done is a work that is done freely, uh, a work that is done freely because Christ has freely forgiven us. God has for, uh, freely forgiven us for Christ's sake. And therefore, with a clear conscience before God, uh, faith can rejoice in God's will for us to live in love toward our neighbor. Faith in God, fervent love toward one another. And that's exactly what we say in the worship service after we take Holy Communion. Uh, can you say those words again? That's something we always have in our prayers after we have received the Lord's Supper. Well, say those words again. Yeah, the words in the prayer are faith in God and fervent love toward one another. And this is such an important phrase that defines all of Christian life. Uh, remember that, that the idea of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone uh, is, is the equation, if you will, for our justification, for our clear conscience before God. But that, not, that is not the end of the Christian life. The Christian life is one that desires to live with faith in God and therefore with fervent love toward one another. The small catechism lays out really nicely this way. And when I teach the small catechism to uh, my confirmands or in adult instruction or whatever, I point out that the, the first three chief parts, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, is really a study on the Word. The second three chief parts, baptism, absolution, and the sacrament of the altar, is a study on the sacraments. And word and sacraments together yield, if you will, a life that is full of daily prayer and the table of duties, a daily life that is full of table of, or excuse me, the daily prayers, faith in God, and the table of duties, love for one another. So word and sacraments, the, the, the very things which bring us the benefits of the cross and the divine service— yield a Christian life lived in a free and clear conscience before God. And therefore, I may appeal to him in daily life and in daily prayers with faith in him. And therefore, in that same clear conscience, may love my neighbor, uh, table of duties. Well, let's dig in because that's a great start as we continue to look at good works and especially understanding beginning always with Christ and a clear conscience. We're on page 114, Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House, page 114, and we're at the end of page 114 with number 97. Now, I want to do this, Pastor, because I think this is a great quote here once again is right prior to number 97 is 96. And last week, we started our program, our study, with these words. And I think it'd be great for us to start here as well. So we're in number 96, when this speaks about the conscience and its relation um, to the gospel, obviously, but also to good works. It says, Conscience, however, cannot be eased before God unless through faith alone. Faith is certain that God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to us, according to Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. This is because justification is only a matter freely promised for Christ's sake. Therefore, is always received before God through faith alone. Now, Pastor, as we go through today, these are good words for us to remember. As we look at the passages that the adversaries were, which would be those who were against the reformers, the, the Concordians, they were quoting passages 
that here's here's the problem is that we as Lutherans will say, well, we believe in scripture alone. Well, the problem happens when they start quoting, quoting scripture at us. And so um, in light of what it says in the conscience and the light as we begin this, uh, this is a challenge for all of us as Christians is when we're like, OK, we believe this what says here. And then they quote another passage. What are good things for us to remember as we look at these these uh, our study today when we look in light of, well, I have scripture, you have scripture. Who's right? Yeah, one of the basic um, rules of interpretation for Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's a very comforting and helpful thing. Uh, that that one, let's say in in the case of this study, a Lutheran can quote Scripture, and a Roman Catholic can quote Scripture, and they don't have to fight over each other as to what it means because it doesn't stand by itself. It stands within the context of the rest of Scripture. Uh, and when it stands in the rest of uh, in the context of the rest of Scripture, that I may look at the rest of Scripture, and that need not be necessarily flipping, uh, you know, to, b- back to the Old Testament uh, in order to find the proper meaning. Sometimes that is helpful, it, but it might be one or two verses before. So a lot of times people like like to. Uh, you know, it's sort of referred to as proof texting. They'll pull out a, a, a particular verse and say, look how this verse supports my view of the scripture. I'm going to use it. And if you can take a step back and say, well, let's read everything around it, uh, then then we can get a better sense on whether or not they're actually taking it in the proper context. Uh, so uh, the listener should not be uh, concerned or worried uh, when a friend says, well, I'm going to throw out a passage of Scripture at you, and this passage supports me. Well, they might think that on the surface, but take the time, uh, walk away from the immediate conversation, and say, I'll tell you what, I'll study this scriptural passage, and I'll get back to you on this one. I need not, quote-unquote, win the argument in that immediate moment. And go go home and study the Scriptures, uh, get the pastor's help, uh, uh, take a look at how it's used within the context, uh, and then you can go back and say, all right, this isn't about being Lutheran versus being Roman Catholic. It's about saying, what does the Scripture actually say? And hopefully, whether Lutheran or Roman Catholic, um, uh, people can agree, yeah, this is what the Scriptures actually say, because uh, the Holy Spirit in his wisdom used actual grammar, uh, used actual uh, Hebrew and Greek languages. Uh, pretty easy for us to figure out grammatically what does it actually say. Well, let's dig in and see what Scripture actually says. Like I said, we're on page 114, number 97. The heading says, Passages the Adversaries Misuse. We confess. Now, we will reply to those passages that the adversaries quote in order to prove that we are justified by love and works. From 1 Corinthians 13, they quote, If I have all faith, but have not love, I am nothing. Here they triumph greatly. Paul testifies to the entire church. They say that faith alone does not justify. But a reply is easy after we have shown above what we teach about love and works. This passage of Paul requires love. We also require this, for we have said above that renewal and beginning to fulfill the law must exist in us according to Jeremiah 31, 33. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. If anyone should cast away love, even though he has great faith, he does not keep his faith, for he he does not keep the Holy Spirit. Nor indeed does Paul in this passage talk about the way of justification. Instead, he writes to those who, after had they had been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit, lest they lose the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the adversaries treat the matter in a ridiculous way. 
They quote this one passage in which Paul teaches about fruit. Yet they leave out many other passages in which he discusses the way of justification in a regular order. Besides, they always add a correction to the other passages that speak of faith, namely, that the passages ought to be understood as applying to faith formed by love. They had no correction that there is also need for faith, which believes we are counted righteous for Christ's sake as the atonement. So the adversaries exclude Christ from justification and teach only our righteousness of the law. But let us return to Paul. No one can conclude anything more from this text than this. Love is necessary. We confess this. It is also necessary not to steal. But the reasoning will not be correct if someone would be put the argument like this. Not to commit theft is necessary. Therefore, not to commit theft justifies. Justification is not of the approval of a particular work, but of the entire person. Therefore, this passage from Paul does not harm us. Only the adversaries must not add to it whatever they please by imagination. Paul does not say that love justifies. He says, I am nothing, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. In other words, faith, however great it may have been, is extinguished. He does not say that love overcomes the terrors of sin and death. He does not set our love against God's wrath and judgment, or that our love satisfies God's law. He does not say that we have access to God by our love without Christ is the atoning sacrifice, that we receive the promise of forgiveness of sins by our love. Paul says nothing about this. He does not. Therefore, think that love justifies because we are justified only when we receive Christ as the atoning sacrifice and believe that for Christ's sake, God is reconciled to us. Neither is justification even to be dreamed of without Christ as the atonement. If there is no need for Christ, if we can overcome death by our love, we have access to God by our love without Christ as the atonement. Then let our adversaries remove the promise about Christ. Let them abolish the gospel. The adversaries corrupt very many passages because they bring to them their own opinions and do not derive the meaning from the passage themselves. For what difficulty is there in this passage? If we remove the interpretation that the adversaries attach to it out of their own mind, they do not understand what justification is or how it occurs. The Corinthians, being justified before, had received many excellent gifts. In the beginning, they glowed with zeal, just as in generally the case. Then dissensions began to arise among them, as Paul points out. They began to discuss the dislike, excuse me, good teachers. So Paul rebuked them, calling them back to offices of love. These are necessary. Yet it would be foolish to imagine that the works of the second table, through which we interact with humans and not properly with God, justify us. But in justification, we interact with God. His wrath must be appeased and conscience must be eased about God. None of these things happen through the works of the second table. Pastor, I'm reminded of the song, They Will, um, they will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. <laughs> when I hear yeah, about this, right. I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that song is, is, is horrible, but it, it does bring this like the word love sounds good. And you're like, oh, that sounds mm -hmm, good. Mm -hmm. And But Melanchthon breaks it down and patiently teaches about our understanding of love. And what does he tell us? Well, uh, love is, a, is a, a fruit of faith. A good tree bears good fruit. A, fruit. a good fruit does not bear a good tree. And so you have to keep things in their proper order. And, and Melanchthon goes back and forth and saying, look, Paul obviously is not saying what the adversaries are trying to get him to say, because the adversary's main point, and it's sort of 
sort of tucked in there, but it's a really good one for our, our listeners to think about. Uh, right in the middle of paragraph 100 there, it says uh, that they apply to the passages this understanding of, quote, faith formed by love. That's a very important phrase and concept in Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, which is the idea that love comes first, and then as you work on loving your neighbor, it will uh, uh, increase, if you will, or it will produce faith uh, uh, out of that love. But that gets the equation completely backwards. We can't properly love our neighbor without faith first um, uh, being there, as we, as we said earlier. And so without faith first present, then whatever sign of love you have toward your neighbor is actually going to be self-serving and not neighbor-serving. Uh, so Melanchthon does a good job here of going back and forth and showing they're misusing this text uh, uh, by pulling it out of context, as we as we talked about earlier, they pull it out of context, they fill it full of their opinions, and then they say, aha, here's, here's a text, a proof text uh, for us, uh, rather than looking at it in context. You know, this is a this is a, a passage, as as Melanchthon sort of points out, that doesn't have anything to do with justification. Think of where uh, think of where it sits in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're in chapter thirteen, right? And and we know if you think of the letter to the Corinthians, chapters one and two, uh, we preach Christ crucified. Uh, and and by the by the time we're getting through to chapter thirteen, you're through all of these different issues in the life of a congregation that Paul says at the beginning of the book, your justification is in Christ crucified. There's the wisdom from God. It's the same thing when he uh, writes to the Romans, and there's a very very specific uh, pattern, if you will, of laying out. First, we're going to talk about sin and the law. Secondly, we're going to talk about uh, gospel and justification, right? So you've got in Romans 1 and 2 and, and the beginning of 3, you've got uh, the uh, sin and the law. Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, toward the end of chapter 3 is that great passage of the Reformation. And then 4 and 5 uh, is, is gospel and faith. And chapter 6 and 7 and 8 is baptism and the baptismal life. In the same way in, in this, uh, in this uh, epistle to the Corinthians, Justification is talked about at the beginning of the epistle, and here we're at chapter 13. Now, maybe, uh, uh, you know, maybe a, uh, one of the things that our Lutheran listeners will think uh, will, will learn about this, uh, chapter 13, is that this is not a passage about marriage. <laughs> you know, how often do you hear this passage uh, used in a, in a wedding? And there's nothing wrong with using it in a wedding, but understand it is not a passage about Christian marriage. It's a passage just about the Christian daily life. And that certainly can be applied to marriage. Uh, what neighbor is closest to you but your spouse? Uh, and yet it is simply Christian love to say, uh, how, do we, uh, how do we care for our fellow Christian, right? Uh, when, when Paul is talking about this, he's talking about the life of the congregation. Uh, before this in chapter 10 and 11, he's talking about the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then from there, he gets into this conversation in which the people are saying, well, we've got all these spiritual gifts, and he says, yeah, slow down about all that because you can get enthusiastic. You can get almost, if you will, pietistic about saying, uh, uh, let's compare who has the greater gifts from God. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you've lost out on the proper understanding of Christian love. And that's why you get, get all of these, uh, uh, get all of this emphasis about love being the highest of Christian gifts, not because it justifies 
but because it knows how to care for your neighbor rather than very pridefully saying, oh, look at this spiritual gift I have or look at that spiritual gift I have. No, no, no. My, my concern is for my neighbor. Uh, my love is for my neighbor, not for my own self-interest or self-praise. So uh, Melanchthon does a great job uh, in, in sort of laying out the, the context and saying the adversaries can misuse this all they want, uh, but the context is pretty straightforward here that this is not about justification at all. This is about the life within the congregation, the life among fellow Christians, and about us loving each other for each other's sake. Uh, not loving uh, each other in order to be seen by God. He has a little snark in there as well. And this number 100, as you mentioned, faith formed by love. Uh, and it speaks, you know, there's no correction that there is also need for faith, which believes that accounted righteousness for Christ's sake as the atonement. So the adversaries exclude Christ. And, you know, this is one of those realities that you will often see, especially at a wedding, is that we talk about love and then people don't ever talk about Jesus. You know, they're talking about the couple's love or other people's love. It's very easy. Mm -hmm. and, and it says here, I love it, but let us return to Paul. <laughs> so you, our listeners, right. <laughs> just remember that whenever we're speaking of these things, the confessions, small catechism, as we're looking at all of that, always, and this is a good reminder for us as pastors, say, okay, how about we go back to the Bible? Not to say it isn't about the Bible and it, you know, it clearly confesses scripture, but I love it. But let's return to Paul. And it says, no one can conclude anything more from this text than this. Love is necessary. Pastor, can you give us just kind of a synopsis of this? Where, okay, uh, it, this, this love is necessary, but not for salvation's sake. Can you break that down for us? Sure. One of the things to, to ask about with that word necessary is, does it mean that it's required? Uh, or does it mean that it necessarily will happen? And it's a little bit of both and, right? By new Adam, remember that, that in, in baptism, we, we have new Adam wrestling against old Adam. In new Adam, uh, it will necessarily flow because that is the result of new Adam's faith. Uh, but for old Adam, it's a requirement. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and old Adam hates that. And so we tend to hear this idea, love is necessary. We tend to hear that through old Adam's ears and go, oh, man, are you telling me I have to love my neighbor? And that's old Adam's response. But new Adam says, hey, this is wonderful. Necessarily flowing from this, I get to love my neighbor. Uh, and I don't have to worry, again, free conscience in Christ. I don't have to worry about my salvation. Uh, but necessarily, what's, what's left for, for my life but to love my neighbor? And so how do you hear that word necessary? I think that's a really important thing for listeners to sort of meditate on and wrestle with. Do we hear it as that which necessarily happens? A good tree will bear good fruit. Or is it something in which you're standing at the tree barking at it saying, you better produce good fruit? Well, of course, a good tree is going to bear good fruit. Uh, and so if, if we're hearing it as a requirement, as a as a uh, uh, as law, uh, love is necessary, then it's really sort of old Adam listening. Uh, new Adam says, of course it's necessary because it necessarily is part of the life that God has given me in faith in him and fervent love toward uh, one another. The idea, though, that love would justify, um, you know, even if theoretically it could precede being justified, faith formed by love, which we've already sort of uh, knock that one uh, uh, down a little bit. Uh, but even if it theoretically could precede being justified, then, as Melanchthon rightly says here, it would render Christ useless. If I can go to heaven just by loving my neighbor, then Christ died for no reason. 
And this is why Roman Catholic doctrine has to say, well, that grace of Christ on the cross has to be infused into you. Uh, and, and that grace is infused into you like a, uh, like a power pellet that, that Pac-Man might eat uh, uh, or, or a, a mushroom that, that Mario uh, stomps on and then he becomes big. Uh, and, then, and then God starts to judge whether or not you're using it well and, and might then save you. Right. So that's how they sort of think of it. Rather than no grace is imputed, you have a a, a, a meaning it is simply declared over you, God's gracious disposition towards you. And that frees you to love your neighbor. My hope and prayer is that we're able to quote a few more Nintendo games before we are out of our time here today. (laughs) So I appreciate that. Um, Pastor, as we look to move forward, uh, is there anything else you want to highlight from numbers 97 through 103? Well, I, the, uh, I think the, the, the big linchpin on this is actually coming up. So I'm going to save my time for, for what, what comes up at the end of this section uh, in, in uh, 13, verse 13. And that's in paragraph at the end of paragraph 104. So maybe we'll, we'll get to that. Awesome. One. But you know what? On that note, we uh, have to take our break. We, need to, we are studying the truth of good works from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with Pastor Mark Bestel. And we'll be right back. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store. We are studying the scriptural understanding of good works in light of justification by faith in Christ alone from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with Pastor Mark Bestel of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Before our break, Pastor, you quoted uh, basically from, uh, you did quote from Galatians chapter 2, I believe it is. Yeah, Galatians 2. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is something that I think we always need to fill uh, uh, to preach and teach like we do as, as faithful Lutherans, and also to remind ourselves daily that if I even try to seep in a little bit of my works, then I look to the cross and say, Jesus, you didn't need to do that. And that is, I mean, <laughs> that is terrifying to think about that when we try to find our hope and our works, that we look at the cross and act as if it did not matter. So once again, I'm just I got nailed to the ground once again as pastor was speaking and a reminder of that clear conscience we need in Christ every single day. So pastor, I I'm ready to move forward here. That sounds ready? good. Let's go. All right. We're in number 104 on page 115, but they object that love is preferred to faith and hope for Paul says in first Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. Now it is reasonable that the greatest and chief virtue should justify. Yet Paul in this passage properly speaks about love towards one neighbor and indicates that love is the greatest because it has the most fruit. Faith and hope have only to do with God. But love has infinite offices outwardly toward humanity. Indeed, let us grant to the adversaries that love toward God and our neighbor is the greatest virtue 
because the chief commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God. But how will they conclude from this love that love justifies? They say the greatest virtue justifies. By no means. For just as the greatest or greatest or first law does not justify, so also the law's greatest virtue does not justify. But the virtue that justifies receives Christ, which brings to us Christ's merits, by which we receive grace and peace from God. This virtue is faith. As it has been often said, faith is not just knowledge, but it is willing to receive or take hold of those things that are offered in the promise about Christ. Furthermore, this obedience toward God, i.e. to want to receive the offered promise, is no less a divine service than his love. God wants us to believe him and to receive His blessing from him blessing. He declares this to be true divine service. Now, Pastor, you mentioned at the end of uh, number 104, you had something to highlight. What do you got? Yeah, I think that verse uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, as uh, Melanchthon there cites that the greatest of these is love. I think people uh, sort of stumble over what that passage means. They stumble over that and think that, that, that focusing on love all the time is what's going to get us to heaven because that's the greatest. And he does a wonderful job. Melanchthon does a wonderful job explaining that it's not the greatest in the sense uh, that it is uh, the most justifying, but rather it is the greatest in the sense uh, that it's the end product. It's, it's built on the foundation of faith in Christ and hope in God. And again, therefore, I am free to love my neighbor. And so the greatest of these, meaning the fulfillment of all of it, the, the, the end result of all of the saving work of God in Christ Jesus for us is that we are free then to love our neighbor. And so he goes on and says, uh, faith and hope have to do only with God. But love has infinite offices outwardly toward humanity. So notice if the Christian, uh, if the Christian faith were only about uh, justification, then I would only be focused on the vertical relationship between me and God. And that would be it. But that's not the entirety of the Christian faith. The fruit that flows from my justification in Christ Jesus, the, fl- the fruit that flows from that is love of neighbor. And so faith, hope, and love, the greatest, the end result of these, the, the wondrous uh, 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 illustration, if you will, or manifestation of all of this is the ability to freely love my neighbor for my neighbor's sake and not because I'm trying to earn anything before God. Uh, that gets into the the, the uh, other wonderful quote in this section is down in 107 about, you know, what is, uh, what is true divine service? Uh, we Lutherans love this phrase because, uh, you know, our, our hymnal even refers to the divine service. Uh, and it's really important, I think, for us, uh, for, for the listeners here to, to allow this paragraph to interpret for you what Sunday morning is all about, and therefore what the rest of your week is all about. Uh, Sunday morning is about your relationship with faith and hope in God and how that is strengthened and sustained. So Sunday morning, the divine service is God's service to you, and you are the recipient of that. Right. So, so sometimes people will ask the question, well, uh, how do we make sure everyone's involved in the church service? But you don't do that by having as many different volunteer positions for people to help in as possible. Uh, I would argue that the the best way for people to most um, uh, to, to most rightly appreciate the divine service is to have as few helpers as possible 
so that everyone can just focus on being a recipient, the one in the back pew is just as actively involved in the divine service as the one who is, uh, um, you know, as the acolyte or whatever, who is sitting right up near the uh, chancel area. Uh, because your participation in the divine service on Sunday morning is as a recipient. Uh, in our congregation, uh, I, I will regularly go to the choir and remind them, uh, it, it's wonderful that you sing, but you do not sing as a performance. Uh, you, you sing as as assisting the, the uh, thankful congregation as it offers up its praises to the living God. Uh, and it's really important for us not to get wrapped up in saying who's getting to do what on a Sunday morning. That's a misunderstanding of the divine service. The divine service is what God does for us, what Christ does for us. And he fills us up, Luther says, he fills our empty bag so that we can take that full bag and go out during the week and love our neighbor. And during the week is our is where, as Paul uh, uh, says, we, we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. So if we want to talk about our spiritual worship, Paul even uses that phrase in Romans, uh, if we want to talk about our spiritual worship as the true, uh, uh, or as our weekly worship of God or our, our daily life worship of God, there's where we offer up our living, or offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice in love of neighbor. And yet the word for worship that perhaps best defines the divine service in Sunday morning is the proskuneo, where we beg like a dog and kiss the ring of the master, and he serves us his goods. He serves us the benefits of the cross uh, for our forgiveness, for the strengthening of our faith and a clear conscience before him. And he strengthens us and, again, fills that bag to go out and, and use it and empty it on our, on our neighbor, on our fellow Christians, especially the household of faith uh, throughout the week. One person put it this way, as you as you expounded and, and taught so beautifully, is it's not so much when I come to worship, what am I going to do, but what am I to receive? What is God giving me this morning, which we would argue? And what, what are we receiving? Like you talked about, we living sacrifices as we leave, but what, what do we receive when we gather Around in the divine service. Yeah, that's a really important uh, question for Christians to have right. Otherwise, they misinterpret the whole the whole point of worship. Uh, we are receiving the very benefits of the cross, right? I mean, you you can you can uh, though you don't want to take the cross out of history in the sense of 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 the reality of it once in history, uh, and yet you can speak of it theologically as uh, uh, the the blood and water that poured from the side of Christ. Uh, pours right out into the sacrament of the life of the church. And Christ is there uh, at work in his word and his sacraments uh, to, to grant us forgiveness and, and to grant us a strengthening of faith and to grant us that clear conscience before God, uh, to, to teach us the holy will of God, the, 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 right, uh, the right doctrine, love of his law. Uh, love of his holy will, uh, because as we'll uh, see in other portions of this, to be honest, the word love is synonymous with the word law, right? It's, it's not synonymous necessarily uh, always with the word gospel, but God's holy will is his love for his, for his people. Uh, and, and so you can speak of it um, uh, as, being, as love being synonymous with gospel and showing God's love toward us, but, but our love uh, uh, toward our neighbor is synonymous with the word law. And so, so on Sunday morning, we're receiving the teaching 
uh, God's holy will toward us, his, his, his love uh, for us to, to live out for our neighbor. Uh, but but uh, in addition to that teaching, of course, uh, that's all predicated by the forgiveness of sins, the clear conscience that no longer needs to be terrified by a law I don't feel I can keep perfectly, and therefore I might be condemned. But rather now with that free and clear conscience toward God and Christ, I can go back and love uh, that law that he has for uh, the good order and life that we live out together as fellow Christians in this world. So, so much that we receive in the divine service uh, for our eternal salvation, for our benefit, but then also for our ability to love our neighbor with a free and clear conscience toward God. Let's continue on. We're on page 116, uh, number 108, we confess. The adversaries base justification on love because they everywhere teach and require the righteousness of the law. We cannot deny that love is the law's highest work. Human wisdom gazes at the law and seeks justification in it. So the scholastic doctors, great and talented men, proclaim love as the law's highest work and base justification on this work. Deceived by human wisdom, they did not look upon the uncovered, but upon the veiled face of Moses, just like the Pharisees, philosophers, and followers of Muhammad. But we preach the foolishness of the gospel, in which another righteousness is revealed. For Christ's sake, as the atonement, we are counted righteous when we believe that God has been reconciled to us for Christ's sake. Neither are we ignorant about how far distant this teaching is from judgment and reason and the law. Nor are we ignorant that the law's teaching above love makes a much greater show. For it is wisdom, but we are not ashamed of the gospel's foolishness. We defend this truth for the sake of Christ's glory and ask Christ by his Holy Spirit to help us so that we may be able to make this clear and obvious. The adversaries in the confutation have also quoted Colossians 3.14 against us, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. From this they conclude that love justifies because it makes people perfect. Although a reply about perfection could be made here in many ways, we will simply recite Paul's meaning. It is certain that Paul spoke about love towards one neighbor, one's neighbor. We must not think that Paul would credit either justification or perfection to the works of the second table, rather than the works of the first. If love makes people perfect, there will then be no need of Christ as the atonement, for faith receives Christ as the only atonement. This is far distant from Paul's meaning, who never allows Christ to be excluded at, as the atonement. Therefore, he speaks not about personal perfection, but about the integrity common to the church. For this reason, he says that love is a bond or connection to show that he speaks about the binding and joining together of the many members of the church. In all families, in all states, unity should be nourished by mutual offices, and peace cannot be maintained unless people overlook and forgive certain mistakes among themselves. In a similar way, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity and bear with the harsher manners of brethren as there is need, and overlook certain less serious mistakes. This must happen or else the church will fly apart into various schisms and hostilities and factions, and heresies will arise from the schisms. Pastor here, they quoted Colossians 3.14, which sounds really good. Love which binds everything together in perfect 
harmony. I mean, I, this sounds like a good wedding text once again. Um, what could be what could be wrong with what they're saying? This is a good example, as we talked about at the top of the hour, how uh, proof texts can be taken out of context and therefore twisted and misinterpreted. Uh, this one is is easy to um, to refute simply by pointing out that Colossians three fourteen follows on Colossians 3.1 and 3.12. Colossians 3.1 starts, if then you have been raised with Christ, right? So it, it, it's built on a presupposition. We're talking to the justified. We're talking to the ones who have been redeemed, the ones who, who, who live in the safety of salvation. And so how can you then use verse 14 to say, now this is how you're saved? Because verse 1 already says, here now is the foundational presupposition that Paul is using to go on with the following verses. And now 14 verses later, he gets to love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you've got that. You've also got verse 12 that says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. How can you be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? How can you, how can you then or subsequently put on something uh, uh, if we're not already talking about the justified? Okay, uh, if we're not already, ta already talking about the redeemed, those who can have a clear conscience because God has declared you holy and beloved. So this is a great example of where the adversaries simply pull a passage out of context. As soon as you say to your Roman Catholic friend, I tell you what, just give me a second. Let me go back and read it in context. You say, wait a minute here. This is totally pulled out of context. Why in the world would you just pull that out of context and say, aha, it proves my point? Um, the other, the other thing that I think we could say about this is, is exactly what uh, Melanchthon hints at when he says love which binds everything together uh, in perfect harmony. Are you justified at the point of perfection or are you justified at the point of the atonement being declared uh, uh, to you and, and applied to you in baptism? So for uh, the scriptures or for the Christian, we should have every confidence and certainty and clear conscience that, uh, that as we have been adopted in baptism, their justification has been applied in totality, and I can live in that the rest of my days with a free and clear conscience toward God. Unfortunately, Roman Catholic doctrine is, uh, in baptism, you have this grace infused in you, again, sort of this power pellet, and your life has to show this increasing progress like a stock market line until you get to that point in which you can say, aha, perfection, now I am certain of my justification. Where's Christ in any of that? But rather, in, just, or in baptism, you have been uh, uh, raised with Christ, you have been clothed with Christ, all those phrases that Paul uses to say, uh, here now the work of the cross has been applied to you. You can have that free and clear conscience because your salvation is certain in Christ. And therefore, as you go out and live with love toward your neighbor, then certainly in our relationships with one another, love binds us together in harmony. Uh, love uh, uh, is patient with one another. Love is gentle with one another. Love uh, uh, is joyful uh, for each other's forgiveness, calls each other to, to repentance, not to uh, condemn and scold, uh, but to rejoice in reconciliation together. Uh, and, and now we get back to some of those phrases that we remember from 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is how we live with one another as fellow Christians because we have a free conscience in Christ Jesus. And it's so important. And I, I'll tell you what, it's something that you find yourself falling in one direction too far. 
where you you're saying the right words and and he speaks about this and that like you've mentioned like you mentioned before our program and I mentioned too that this is really just a good bible study because you're looking at Colossians 3 and if you were to look at Colossians chapter 3 I mean the the chapter itself is so rich in gospel you know the whole book obviously especially Colossians uh, 1 and 2 that when we come into this it comes to that it understands your identity in Christ alive in Christ chapter 2 6 through 15 um talks about baptism and so it talks about putting on the new self like you said that's an understanding of you are robed in Christ's righteousness so i encourage you our listeners that as you're here as you heard just pastor uh bestel break this down read chapter 3 and well but actually you know what read the whole book of colossians as i'm talking <laughs> because it really helps understand the kind of Ups, not ups and downs, the law gospel way that, that Paul is writing, obviously all covered um, by the cross of our Lord Jesus. Pastor, anything else you want to highlight in the section we just read? It's just, it's a beautiful section, and and I would encourage uh, listeners to go back and, and read these things often, and, and not only not only to see how uh, Melanchthon rightly defends uh, the the proper reading of these particular passages, but but the more you study this, the more it helps you learn in any passage, how do I go make sure that it is being read in context, used in context, and interpreted rightly? And I'll say this too, in on, on number 111, about midway through, it speaks about how in a similar, actually towards the bottom, in a similar way, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity, bear with the harsher manners of brethren, as there is need and overlooks certain less serious mistakes. It speaks here about the importance of the church and pastor uh, and you our listeners. We all know of situations where there has been conflict and burdens within the church. And this is where, if we're going to focus on the church's love for one another, obviously we have to have it. But if we explicitly just talk about, we got to just love each other. Why don't you just love each other? And we lose sight of Christ's love how messy it can get. But at the same time, you're like, wait a second, this is the church. How come the church is in conflict? Pastor, what would be your counsel to our listeners as maybe they're going through a conflict at their church and obviously need to focus on love? What would your counsel be? When we want to focus on love, I think you I think you say it well. If we're focusing on our abilities to love each other, we're always going to be disappointed. Uh, our, our abilities to love each other are always imperfect. And a congregation that is built on the hopes that we can show perfect Christian love, that congregation is going to be disappointed. Uh, but where our focus is always Christ and always kept in Christ, uh, then we can have a clear conscience uh, before God, but we can also have patience toward one another. Uh, we as Lutherans have this great theology of Scripture that realizes we're dealing with fellow sinners, we're, we're not just dealing with fellow Christians. We're dealing with fellow sinners. And, and new Adam in each of us is wrestling feverishly to drown old Adam. And so we need patience with one another. We need gentleness with one another, long-suffering with one another. Uh, and yet the hope is not that the congregation learns how to do that so well that we never have any problems. Uh, if you look closely enough, every congregation, you're going to have sort of this ugly, soft underbelly of what goes on in the life of the congregation. But rather, because we have a clear conscience in God in Christ, 
we can continue to wrestle and care for one another. Interestingly, uh, and I don't want to take too much time on this, my apologies, Brady, but but I do want to make this point in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about how the Son of Man comes again in his glory, and, and, uh, uh, and, and then he says, come, blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom of heaven prepared for you, for you were, for I was hungry, or excuse me, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and, and that whole process. Notice how Christ comforts them by saying, inherit heaven. It's not something you've earned. It's something that's being freely given to you. And yet in that same breath, he says, my father is, and the Greek word there uh, is, is uh, uh, along the lines of what we say is eulogy. My father is speaking well of you. Why? Because of the love that you showed to the least of my brethren. Right? So the, the Christian congregation, the Christian church is comforted with a clear conscience before God, because we inherit by Christ's work, by Christ's will and testament, uh, we inherit heaven, we inherit salvation, it's freely given. And therefore, how do we prepare for him to come again in his glory? We work hard at loving one another, uh, never too, never overly frustrated by our imperfect abilities to do so, uh, but always with a free and clear conscience toward God, and therefore gentleness, patience, long-suffering with one another, uh, true Christian love. We continue on page 117. We're on number 112. Unity cannot last, is necessarily dissolved. Whenever the bishop imposes heavier burdens upon the people or when they have no respect for weakness in the people, dissensions arise when the people judge too severely the conduct of teachers or despise the teachers because of certain less serious faults. For then another kind of teaching and other teachers are sought after. On the other hand, perfection, i.e. the church's integrity, is preserved when the strong bear with the weak, when the people put up with some faults in the conduct of their teachers, and when the bishops make some allowances for the people's weakness. The books of all the wise are full of these teachings about fairness, namely, that in everyday life we should make many allowances mutually for the sake of common peace. Paul teaches about this frequently, both here and elsewhere. Therefore, the adversaries do not argue carefully about the term perfection that love justifies. For Paul speaks of common integrity and peace. Ambrose interprets this passage in this way. Just as a building is said to be perfect or entire when all its parts are fitly joined together with one another. Furthermore, it is disgraceful for the adversaries to preach so much about love while they don't show it anywhere. What are they doing now? They are tearing apart churches. They are writing laws and blood and asking the most merciful prince, the emperor, to enforce them. They are killing priests and other good men if one of them has slightly indicated that he does not entirely approve of their clear abuses. What are they doing? What they're doing is not consistent with their claims of love, which if the adversaries would follow, the churches would be peaceful and the state would have peace. This turmoil would be lessened if the adversaries would stop being so bitter about certain traditions. These traditions are useless for godliness and are hardly observed by those very persons who must earnestly defend them. The adversaries easily forgive themselves, but they do not likewise forgive others. According to the passage in the poet, I forgive myself, Mavis says, but what do they do is very far from those praise of love than they recite here from Paul. They do not understand the word any more than the walls of a building that echo it back. They cite also this sentence from Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter also speaks of love toward one's neighbor, 
because he joins his passage to the rule that command love for one another. No apostle would have imagined, A, our love overcomes sin and death. B, love satisfies God's wrath and reconciles us to God while excluding Christ as mediator. And C, love in and of itself is righteousness before God without Christ as mediator. For this love, if such a thing could exist, would be a righteousness of the law, not of the gospel. The gospel promises reconciliation and righteousness to us if we believe that for the sake of Christ as reconciler, the Father has been reconciled and that Christ's merits are given to us. Peter urges us a little before to come to Christ, that we may be built upon him. He adds in 1 Peter, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When God judges and convicts us, our love does not free us from our confusion, but faith in Christ frees us from these fears because we know that for Christ's sake, we are forgiven. There's a lot there, Pastor. That is, I, I feel like I need to read this three or four more times. I'm not going to do that with you here today <laughs> on Concord Matters, but Pastor, where do you want to start? Well, uh, yeah, you're right. There's so much there that could be said. I think that, you know, uh, again, Melanchthon speaks certainly historically, and, and sadly, I think it's still true in some of the Roman Catholic doctrine, but historically, that he can point to the adversaries tearing apart the church for the sake of Roman authority uh, or papal authority. And, and there's just no, you know, where's the love in that? They can preach about it all they want. And yet the historic examples show that they know nothing about love. Uh, and and so he says, you know, that this is a it's a very empty argument that they're making just by the fact that you can look and see what they're doing historically at this time and see that they know nothing about love. So that's that sort of that that first half of, of what we had uh, read there. But then as he turns to First Peter four eight, sort of the third. Uh, passage for Bible study here. Again, they cite this sentence, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, again, I would say to the listener, go look at 1 Peter chapter 4, see it in context, and you you just can't help but understand what Melanchthon is here uh, saying when he says uh, it's obvious that Peter speaks of love toward one's neighbor. Uh, and and that's what the whole chapter is about, and that's what everything's about is is love towards one's neighbor, and one's towards uh, uh, love towards a neighbor is not what justifies; it's what flows from justification. Uh, so uh, as he goes on, no apostle, whether we're talking about Peter or Paul or John or whoever, no apostle would have imagined that you would say, if you just learn how to love each other, then you'll get to heaven. Where is Christ in any of that? Christ is mediator. Uh, only makes sense if Christ is actually the one uh, uh, defending you, fighting on your behalf, making the the uh, argument for you. And he doesn't make the argument by saying, oh, look at how much they've loved each other. But rather, your defense attorney, if you will, his argument is, here are the, here are the wounds in my hand. Here are the wounds in my side. Uh, I have I have paid their price. Uh, and, and therefore, Father, you may you may uh, see in them me, right? God does not uh, God does not save us because He says, "Well, you know what? I was going to condemn you, but now I see your love." Rather, He says, "I was going to condemn you, but there is Christ on the tree." Uh, and and if that's justification, then you cannot somehow say that our our imperfect love would somehow outshine that. I mean, that's the that's the silliness of this whole thing. Look at Christ's love on the tree, but here is my love. Look how great my love is. I mean, what, what a silly notion to try to compare my love to Christ's love and think that God will justify me because I've added my trivial love to Christ's. 
Uh, and so uh, Melanchthon is right. No apostle would, would talk this way, uh, but rather in the, in the safety of a free and clear conscience toward God, with Christ as our reconciler, uh, then whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, but rather with a free and clear conscience may go out and love his neighbor. Pastor, I want to just highlight this. We have two minutes left in our time. He speaks beautifully like we, as we are as the body of Christ. He talks about unity cannot last when we try to basically focus on our love. And he speaks beautifully about the patience we are to have with one another the strong and the weak working together. He doesn't say, if that person's too weak, get rid of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't speak that way at all. Pastor, with about a minute and a half left, what would be your encouragement to our listeners in the church, especially if they're going through some conflict and, and Melanchthon's words and what we understand with good works and justification by faith? I think the, the strength for your congregation, listener, is Christ's doctrine. Uh, Christ's doctrine is full of law and gospel. Uh, it clears our conscience. It teaches us how to love one another. Uh, it it defends us in time, or it, it holds us together in times of conflict. Uh, uh, it it uh, defends us from allowing in that which would cause conflict. Uh, and so certainly congregations can have a whole array of things that, that cause internal conflict, turmoil, pressure, whatever it might be. The answer to all of it is to flee to Christ, uh, flee to Christ, not only in saying, look, there's Jesus on the cross. Now, what do I make of that? But rather his word tells you what to make of it. His word, his word says, here is your redemption. Now, here is my holy will for you, right? To love his law just as much as to love the good news. The good news of our, of our redemption in Christ permits us to love the law without fear of condemnation. And therefore, what's going to hold your uh, uh, congregation together is the love of Christ's doctrine through and through, the study of it together, the wrestling over it together, the pastor-led study uh, uh, that, that, that you might then learn by that uh, doctrine, uh, how to live with faith in God and fervent love with one another. Pastor Mark Bestel of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois, clearly confessing the truth of love fulfilling the law. Pastor Bestel, thank you for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brady. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. 